Book Four, Sections One through Four of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Politics by Aristotle. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Four, Section One. In all arts and sciences which embrace the whole of any subject, and do not come into being in a fragmentary way, it is the province of a single art or science to consider all that appertains to a single subject. For example, the art of gymnastic considers not only the suitableness of different modes of training to different bodies, two, but what sort is absolutely the best, one. For the absolutely best must suit that which is by nature best and best furnished with the means of life. And also what common form of training is adapted to the great majority of men. For, And if a man does not desire the best habit of body, or the greatest skill in gymnastics, which might be attained by him, still the trainer or the teacher of gymnastic should be able to impart any lower degree of either. 3. The same principle equally holds in medicine and shipbuilding, and the making of clothes, and in the arts generally. Hence it is obvious that government too is the subject of a single science which has to consider what government is best, and of what sort it must be, to be most in accordance with our aspirations, if there were no external impediment, and also what kind of government is adapted to particular states. For the best is often unattainable and therefore the true legislator and statesman ought to be acquainted not only with one that which is best in the abstract but also with two that which is best relatively to circumstances we should be able further to say how a state may be constituted under any given conditions three both how it is originally formed and when formed how it may be longest preserved the supposed state being so far from having the best constitution that it is unprovided even with the conditions necessary for the best. Neither is it the best under the circumstances, but of an inferior type. He ought, moreover, to know, for, the form of government which is best suited to states in general. For political writers, although they have excellent ideas, are often impractical. We should consider not only what form of government is best, but also what is possible, and what is easily attainable by all. There are some who would have none but the most perfect. For this, many natural advantages are required. Others, again, speak of a more attainable form, and, although they reject the constitution under which they are living, they extol someone in particular, for example, the Lacedaemonian. Any change of government which has to be introduced should be one which men, starting from their existing constitutions, will be both willing and able to adopt, since there is quite as much trouble in the reformation of an old constitution as in the establishment of a new one, just as to unlearn is as hard as to learn. And therefore, in addition to the qualifications of the statesman already mentioned, he should be able to find remedies for the defects of existing constitutions, as has been said before. This he cannot do unless he knows how many forms of government there are. It is often supposed that there is only one kind of democracy and one of oligarchy, but this is a mistake, 
and in order to avoid such mistakes, we must ascertain what differences there are in the constitutions of states, and in how many ways they are combined. The same political insight will enable a man to know which laws are the best, and which are suited to different constitutions. For the laws are, and ought to be, relative to the constitution, and not the constitution to the laws. A constitution is the organization of offices in a state, and determines what is to be the governing body, and what is the end of each community. But laws are not to be confounded with the principles of the constitution. They are the rules according to which the magistrates should administer the state, and proceed against offenders. So that we must know the varieties, and the number of varieties, of each form of government, if only with a view to making laws. For the same laws cannot be equally suited to all oligarchies or to all democracies, since there is certainly more than one form both of democracy and of oligarchy. Section 2. In our original discussion about governments, we divided them into three true forms, kingly rule, aristocracy, and constitutional government, and three corresponding perversions, tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy. Of kingly rule and of aristocracy we have already spoken, for the inquiry into the perfect state is the same thing with the discussion of the two forms thus named, since both imply a principle of virtue provided with external means. We have already determined in what aristocracy and kingly rule differ from one another, and when the latter should be established. In what follows we have to describe the so-called constitutional government, which bears the common name of all constitutions, and the other forms, tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy. It is obvious which of the three perversions is the worst, and which is the next in badness. That which is the perversion of the first, and most divine, is necessarily the worst. And just as a royal rule, if not a mere name, must exist by virtue of some great personal superiority in the king, so tyranny, which is the worst of governments, is necessarily the farthest removed from all well-constituted form. Oligarchy is little better, for it is a long way from aristocracy, and democracy is the most tolerable of the three. A writer who preceded me has already made these distinctions, but his point of view is not the same as mine, for he lays down the principle that when all the constitutions are good, the oligarchy and the rest being virtuous, democracy is the worst, but the best when all are bad. Whereas we maintain that they are in any case defective, and that one oligarchy is not to be accounted better than another, but only less bad. Not to pursue this question further at present, let us begin by determining, one, how many varieties of constitution there are, since of democracy and oligarchy there are several. Two, what constitution is the most generally acceptable, and what is eligible in the next degree after the perfect state? And besides this, what other there is which is aristocratical and well-constituted, and at the same time adapted to states in general? 3. Of the other forms of government to whom each is suited. For democracy may meet the needs of some better than oligarchy, and conversely. In the next place, 4. We have to consider in what manner a man ought to proceed who desires to establish some one among these various forms, whether of democracy or of oligarchy. And lastly, 5. 
Having briefly discussed these subjects to the best of our power, we will endeavour to ascertain the modes of ruin and preservation both of constitutions generally and of each separately, and to what causes they are to be attributed. Section 3 The reason why there are many forms of government is that every state contains many elements. In the first place, we see that all states are made up of families, and in the multitude of citizens there must be some rich and some poor, and some in a middle condition. The rich are heavy-armed, and the poor not. Of the common people, some are husbandmen, and some traders, and some artisans. There are also among the notables differences of wealth and property, for example, in the number of horses which they keep, for they cannot afford to keep them unless they are rich. And therefore, in old times, the cities whose strength lay in their cavalry were oligarchies, and they used cavalry in wars against their neighbors, as was the practice of the Eritreans and Chalcidians, and also of the Magnesians on the river Meander, and of other peoples in Asia. Besides differences of wealth, there are differences of rank and merit, and there are some other elements which were mentioned by us when in treating of aristocracy we enumerated the essentials of a state. Of these elements, sometimes all, sometimes the lesser, and sometimes the greater number, have a share in the government. It is evident, then, that there must be many forms of government, differing in kind, since the parts of which they are composed differ from each other in kind. For a constitution is an organization of offices, which all the citizens distribute among themselves, according to the power which different classes possess. For example, the rich or the poor, or according to some principle of equality which includes both. There must therefore be as many forms of government as there are modes of arranging the offices, according to the superiorities and differences of the parts of the state. There are generally thought to be two principal forms, as men say of the winds that there are but two, north and south, and that the rest of them are only variations of these, so of governments there are said to be only two forms, democracy and oligarchy. For aristocracy is considered to be a kind of oligarchy, as being the rule of a few, and the so-called constitutional government to be really a democracy, just as among the winds we make the west a variation of the north, and the east of the south wind. Similarly, of musical modes there are said to be two kinds, the Dorian and the Phrygian. The other arrangements of the scale are comprehended under one or other of these two. About forms of government this is a very favorite notion. But in either case the better and more exact way is to distinguish, as I have done, the one or two which are true forms, and to regard the others as perversions, whether of the most perfectly attempered mode or of the best form of government. We may compare the severer and more overpowering modes to the oligarchical forms, and the more relaxed and gentler ones to the democratic. Section 4 it must not be assumed, as some are fond of saying, that democracy is simply that form of government in which the greater number are sovereign, for in oligarchies, and indeed in every government, the majority rules. Nor again is oligarchy that form of government in which a few are sovereign. Suppose the whole population of a city to be 1,300, and that of these 1,000 are rich, and do not allow the remaining three hundred, who are poor but free, and in all other respects their equals, a share of the government. No one will say that this is a democracy. 
In like manner, if the poor were few, and the masters of the rich who outnumber them, no one would ever call such a government, in which the rich majority have no share of office, an oligarchy. Therefore we should rather say that democracy is the form of government in which the free are rulers, and oligarchy in which the rich. It is only an accident that the free are the many, and the rich are the few. Otherwise, a government in which the offices were given according to stature, as is said to be the case in Ethiopia, or according to beauty, would be an oligarchy, for the number of tall or good-looking men is small. And yet oligarchy and democracy are not sufficiently distinguished merely by these two characteristics of wealth and freedom. Both of them contain many other elements, and therefore we must carry our analysis further and say that the government is not a democracy in which the free men, being few in number, rule over the many who are not free, as at Apollonia, on the Ionian Gulf, and at Thera. For in each of these states the nobles, who were also the earliest settlers, were held in chief honour, although they were but a few out of many. Neither is it a democracy when the rich have the government, because they exceed in number, as was the case formerly at Colophon, where the bulk of the inhabitants were possessed of large property before the Lydian War. But the form of government is a democracy when the free, who are also poor, and the majority, govern, and an oligarchy when the rich and the noble govern, they being at the same time few in number. I have said that there are many forms of government, and have explained to what causes the variety is due. Why there are more than those already mentioned, and what they are, and whence they arise, I will now proceed to consider, starting from the principle already admitted, which is that every state consists not of one, but of many parts. If we were going to speak of the different species of animals, we should first of all determine the organs which are indispensable to every animal, as for example some organs of sense and the instruments of receiving and digesting food, such as the mouth and the stomach, besides organs of locomotion. Assuming now that there are only so many kinds of organs, but that there may be differences in them, I mean different kinds of mouths and stomachs and perceptive and locomotive organs, the possible combinations of these differences will necessarily furnish many varieties of animals. For animals cannot be the same which have different kinds of mouths or of ears. And when all the combinations are exhausted, there will be as many sorts of animals as there are combinations of the necessary organs. The same, then, is true of the forms of government which have been described. States, as I have repeatedly said, are composed not of one, but of many elements. One element is the food-producing class, who are called husbandmen. A second, the class of mechanics, who practice the arts without which a city cannot exist. Of these arts, some are absolutely necessary, others contribute to luxury or to the grace of life. The third class is that of traders, and by traders I mean those who are engaged in buying and selling, whether in commerce or in retail trade. A fourth class is that of the serfs or laborers. The warriors make up the fifth class, and they are as necessary as any of the others, if the country is not to be the slave of every invader. For how can a state, which has any title to the name, be of a slavish nature? The state is independent and self-sufficing, but a slave is the reverse of independent. Hence we see that this subject, though ingeniously, has not been satisfactorily treated in the Republic. Socrates says that a state is made up of four sorts of people who are absolutely necessary, 
These are a weaver, a husbandman, a shoemaker, and a builder. Afterwards, finding that they are not enough, he adds a smith, and again a herdsman, to look after the necessary animals, then a merchant, and then a retail trader. All these together form the complement of the first state, as if a state were established merely to supply the necessaries of life, rather than for the sake of the good, or stood equally in need of shoemakers and of husbandmen. But he does not admit into the state a military class until the country has increased in size, and is beginning to encroach on its neighbor's land, whereupon they go to war. Yet even amongst his four original citizens, or whatever be the number of those whom he associates in the state, there must be some one who will dispense justice and determine what is just. And as the soul may be said to be more truly part of an animal than the body, so the higher parts of states, that is to say, the warrior class, the class engaged in the administration of justice, and that engaged in deliberation, which is the special business of political common sense, these are more essential to the state than the parts which minister to the necessaries of life. Whether their several functions are the functions of different citizens, or of the same, for it may often happen that the same persons are both warriors and husbandmen, is immaterial to the argument. The higher, as well as the lower elements, are to be equally considered parts of the state, and if so, the military element at any rate must be included. There are also the wealthy who minister to the state with their property. These form the seventh class. The eighth class is that of magistrates and of officers, for the state cannot exist without rulers. And therefore some must be able to take office and to serve the state, either always or in turn. There only remains the class of those who deliberate and who judge between disputants. We were just now distinguishing them. If presence of all these elements and their fair and equitable organization is necessary to states, then there must also be persons who have the ability of statesmen. Different functions appear to be often combined in the same individual. For example, the warrior may also be a husbandman or an artisan, or again the counselor a judge, and all claim to possess political ability, and think that they are quite competent to fill most offices. But the same persons cannot be rich and poor at the same time. For this reason, the rich and the poor are regarded in an especial sense as parts of a state. Again, because the rich are generally few in number, while the poor are many, they appear to be antagonistic, and as the one or the other prevails, they form the government. Hence arises the common opinion that there are two kinds of government, democracy and oligarchy. I have already explained that there are many forms of constitution, and to what causes the variety is due. Let me now show that there are different forms both of democracy and oligarchy as will indeed be evident from what has preceded. For both in the common people and in the notables, various classes are included. Of the common people, one class are husbandmen, another artisans, another traders who are employed in buying and selling, another are the seafaring class, whether engaged in war or in trade, as ferrymen or as fishermen. In many places, any one of these classes forms quite a large population, for example, fishermen at Tarentum and Byzantium, crews of triremes at Athens, merchant seamen at Aegina and Caius, ferrymen at Tenedos. To the classes already mentioned may be added day-laborers, 
and those who, owing to their needy circumstances, have no leisure, or those who are not of free birth on both sides, and there may be other classes as well. The notables, again, may be divided according to their wealth, birth, virtue, education, and similar differences. Of forms of democracy, first comes that which is said to be based strictly on equality. In such a democracy, the law says that it is just for the poor to have no more advantage than the rich, and that neither should be masters but both equal. For if liberty and equality, as is thought by some, are chiefly to be found in democracy, they will be best attained when all persons alike share in the government to the utmost. And since the people are the majority, and the opinion of the majority is decisive, such a government must necessarily be a democracy. Here, then, is one sort of democracy. There is another, in which the magistrates are elected according to a certain property qualification, but a low one. He who has the required amount of property has a share in the government, but he who loses his property loses his rights. Another kind is that in which all the citizens who are under no disqualification share in the government, but still the law is supreme. In another, everybody, if he be only a citizen, is admitted to the government, but the law is supreme as before. A fifth form of democracy, in other respects the same, is that in which not the law, but the multitude, have the supreme power, and supersede the law by their decrees. This is a state of affairs brought about by the demagogues, for in democracies which are subject to the law the best citizens hold the first place, and there are no demagogues, but where the laws are not supreme, there demagogues spring up, for the people becomes a monarch, and is many in one, and the many have the power in their hands, not as individuals, but collectively. Homer says that it is not good to have a rule of many but whether he means this corporate rule, or the rule of many individuals, is uncertain. At all events, this sort of democracy, which is now a monarch, and no longer under the control of law, seeks to exercise monarchical sway, and grows into a despot. The flatterer is held in honour. This sort of democracy, being relatively to other democracies, what tyranny is to other forms of monarchy, the spirit of both is the same, and they alike exercise a despotic rule over the better citizens. The decrees of the demos correspond to the edicts of the tyrant, and the demagogue is to the one what the flatterer is to the other. Both have great power, the flatterer with the tyrant, the demagogue with democracies of the kind which we are describing. The demagogues make the decrees of the people override the laws by referring all things to the popular assembly. And therefore they grow great, because the people have all things in their hands, and they hold in their hands the votes of the people, who are too ready to listen to them. Further, those who have any complaint to bring against the magistrates say, Let the people be judges. The people are too happy to accept the invitation, and so the authority of every office is undermined. Such democracy is fairly open to the objection that it is not a constitution at all, for where the laws have no authority there is no constitution. The law ought to be supreme over all, and the magistrates should judge of particulars, and only this should be considered a constitution. 
so that if democracy be a real form of government, the sort of system in which all things are regulated by decrees is clearly not even a democracy in the true sense of the word, for decrees relate only to particulars. These, then, are the different kinds of democracy. End of Book 4 Sections 1 through 4